Good morning. Thanks for coming back. We're in a series in the life of Elijah, as you know, and we're studying Elijah's obedience to a call that God gave him. Uh, and the, the story is the story of an ordinary person that becomes extraordinary because of his obedience. I mean, that's the story of Elijah. It's the story of every one of us is that God takes ordinary people and turns them into extraordinary people because they are willing to say yes to God. And so life is about saying yes to God as followers of Christ. When Jesus walked the Sea of Galilee and he turned to his disciples and said, come follow me, they had to say yes. When Jesus released the ministry at the end of his life before the crucifixion to his disciples, he said go. He told them to go and they had to respond and say yes. So the Christian response is always yes. And we're just learning how to say yes. That's what, that's what the Christian life is about, is, is overcoming our fears and our doubts, our discouragements, our insecurities, and saying yes to God and allowing God to do something extraordinary in our lives. And so that's the life of Elijah. And we know that he uh, experiences both the ups and downs, the undulations of life. That's where life is lived. It's in the ups and the downs. It's the peaks and the troughs, as C.S. Lewis identifies. That's where God does his best work. Um, And he's going to do his best work in your life. Elijah goes all the way to the Mount Carmel, all the way to the top of the mountain, and scores a major victory for God, but then immediately goes all the way to the valley in deep depression and discouragement. How is that possible? Well, the reason why that's possible is because it's real life, and it's where every single one of us lives. We have moments of peak victories, and we have moments of great descent, failures, hardships, and darkness. And Elijah learns to trust God and be obedient uh, through the process. And so we're just looking at various components of his life. We know the story of Elijah, ninth century prophet. He was called on by God in the 9th century B.C. during the time of King Ahab, probably the darkest time in Israel's history. The the, the country had turned to idolatry. So if you study 1 Kings chapter 11, starting with Solomon's death, King Solomon, and you go all the way to Ahab, what you discover is just a series of kings that further eroded the wholehearted devotion to God by brim introducing alternate gods into society. And then God decides it's a time's up. It's enough. God is a patient God. And finally decides enough is enough. We need to bring the nation, the country back. And so he calls on Ahab, Elijah, to go to Ahab and to reverse this trend. And, uh, and, indicates that there will be a three-year, three-and-a-half-year drought, no rain, that will alert the people that they need to bring about a revival in their own hearts. Droughts do that, don't they? Droughts always bring about a greater awareness of what is most significant in our lives. And you may be going through a drought right now, and you may be in a hard place God has you there to bring about renewal, always renewal. And so we discover in 1 Kings chapter 17, um, Elijah's this Tishbite. He's from Gilead, which is this small region 
east of the Jordan, kind of even outside of the mainstream Israel, everything else was happening. Really, all the main things were going on west of the Jordan. So here's Elijah. He's a farmer. He's a sheep herder. And he's east of the Jordan and living in isolation. And God calls him out of that isolation and tells him to go to King Ahab and announce that there will be a drought for three and a half years. And that's what we have in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. And then he says, go hide yourself, and you're going to stay in hiding for three and a half years until the rain comes again. And in 18, chapter 18, verse 1, it says, It happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab. Go back to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elisha went to show himself to Ahab. And in that interaction with Ahab, he meets Obadiah, it says, along the way. And Obadiah is a fellow Israelite who's serving the king. And he sees him and becomes afraid because Elijah is the one who brought the message that there would be no rain for three and a half years. So he was the problem in Israel. And Obadiah lived in fear. And so he sees him and he's frightened. Oh my goodness, Elijah is back. I'm in big trouble. There's no way in the world I'm going to King Ahab and telling the king, Elijah's here to speak to you one more time because it may be my last. And what it says in this passage, he has this interaction with Elijah and says, you're the one, I've, I've hid the rest of the prophets. They're in hiding. Jezebel went after him. He, he, she tried to massacre the prophets of Israel in order to promote idolatry in the land. I mean, that's dedication. Isn't that interesting? In a culture that believes in a monotheistic God, purely devoted to God, an outside influence comes in, and it's not just an, it's just not like a, an alternative. It's not a suggestion. It's a way of life. And there's so much passion behind it and so much energy that Jezebel, who introduced idolatry into Israel, actually wanted to eliminate any competition by slaying all the prophets. Elijah's the last one out in the open. The rest of the ones have been slayed or they're in hiding. And Obadiah is fearful that he's going to be the one to go to Ahab and say, the one living prophet that has spoken a curse against you and the nation is here to visit you. And Elijah has to talk him off the cliff and encourage him and say, don't worry, I'll go. And, and that conversation ends well. Obadiah goes to Ahab and says, Elijah, the living prophet, is here to speak to you again. And then there's that conversation in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? And I like one translation, you're the scourger of Israel. He said, I have not troubled Israel, Elijah says, but you and your father's house have because you have broken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. So Elijah has this confrontation and in that confrontation announces there will be rain again. God is bringing back rain, but in the other side of it is he identifies the root of the problem. Here's the big question on the table. What was Elijah doing? I mean, really, when you look at the life of Elijah and you hear that story, 
what's this really all about? My suggestion is that Elijah found his true purpose when God called him out of isolation. There's a, there's a book, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the main idea, and then I'm going to tell you how Elijah got there, and, and then I'm going to illustrate this with a couple personal stories this morning. There's a book out there. It's called From Strength to Strength. Did anybody read that book? It's by a Harvard prof. Um, uh, his name's Arthur Brown, um, Arthur Brown. It's called Strength to Strength. It's a very long title. Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Anybody in the second half of life? Yeah, there's a lot of us in the second half. James raised his hand. That's really sad. <laughs> you are not in the second half of your life yet. Don't jump into it too soon. Let me just encourage you, brother. But for the rest of you, either you're in the first half or the second half. That's kind of the way these writers think. You got a first half and you got a second half. And this book's written from the perspective of how to find success and happiness and your purpose in the second half. Like, you didn't get it in the first half, so let's see if we can try to get in the second half or something like that. I like this guy because he's not only a Harvard prof, he's also a professional classical French hornist. And anybody that plays a brass instrument and is an intellectual, for me personally, that's inspiring. So I aspire to both. I've accomplished neither. But... Um, there, there's time in the second half to find success and happiness and purpose. And that may be my purpose. So what he says in this, what's he saying? And this is really good for young people. This is good for people in the first half to get it right. One of the best messages I ever heard as a young person, as a college student, was a message on marriage. Well, I wasn't even thinking about marriage. How can a message that doesn't even apply to your life at the moment be important because it began to get me thinking about what it is that I'm going, I, I, was, I was hoping one day would happen. And it began to set and frame things properly. So my suggestion is, young people, this is really important. How do you find true success and happiness and purpose? Well, this is what he finds. He discovers that the peak of creative um, success in your career occurs about 20 years after you begin working. So it takes 20 years to get there. So your first job is probably not your last job. It most certainly won't be your most fulfilling job. You're going to have to work really hard because at some point, maybe about 20 years into your work life, you will discover you've peaked in terms of your success and your performance and things are great and then everything's downhill after that. Very discouraging. So by the time you're in your 30s, late 30s, into your 40s, into your 50s, guess what's happening? You've peaked, and now what we see is a decline. And here's the question that he asks. How do you keep the party going, right? How do we keep going? Charles Dar Darwin's an example that he gives in this book um, that back in the 1800s when he got on that, the, that ship, um, the Beagle, and headed to the Galapagos, made all those observations, brought home lots of samples, and began writing and theorizing about the beginning of time and the, and the development of, of life on this earth and came up with his, his theories of evolution. Um, tremendous success. He, he, he published them many years later, uh, about 20 plus years later, in the um, Origin of the Species. And um, was extremely famous and productive and uh, a lot of science based its theories and 
premises on Darwin's findings. But this is what he says at the end of his life, and this is important. He says, I have not the heart nor the strength to keep my, my investigations lasting years. Like he's done. Like I, I can't keep going. I have everything to be happy, but my life seems weariness. Weariness. I mean, this is Charles Darwin saying this about life. And what, what Brooks points out is that's not uncommon. A lot of people get to that place because they have not found their true sense of happiness, purpose in life. And I want to suggest to you that Elijah found that and stayed the course because he discovered his main purpose in life. And it's the same main purpose that every single one of us has. We often put these Old Testament and New Testament characters in a totally different separate category, don't we? We put like Elijah way up here like, there's no way I could even relate to Elijah or the Apostle Paul or Peter or Moses or Abraham or anybody else. We always take the, all the Bible characters and we blop them over here saying, they're very unique. And they have a unique skill set that we'll never, ever have because we're human and they're not human. They're as human as we were. They lived out a human existence, but they trusted God with their lives, and God did something extraordinary just as he can do today. And we have to start there because we can't separate ourselves and say, well, I'm not Elijah, so this doesn't apply to me. It absolutely applies to us. Because Elijah was a farmer. He was a sheep herder. He was living in Gilead, east of the Jordan, and God tapped him on the shoulder and said, I have a job for you. And, and I think therein lies the purpose of the Christian's life. Here's my question to you. It's a riddle. Did Elijah in this, series, in this section of scripture that we just looked at, was he serving the king or was he serving God? What do you think? God? I mean, you think kind of like, he's serving God. God told him to go, right? Makes sense. But don't you think he was also serving Ahab? See, my premise is this. This is my suggestion for your thought. Elijah learned the key to longevity in his life by finding his purpose through serving God at the pleasure of the king. Ah, but I didn't tell you which king, did I? I didn't tell you it was King Ahab or the true king, God the king. His, God is the king of the kingdom, right? He is ultimate. So was Elijah serving ultimate king or was he serving human King Ahab? And my suggestion is both. My suggestion is both. And I think therein lies the secret of purpose to the Christian life. Let me explain. We don't serve others. We serve God. We serve God by serving others. Do you see how that works? Isn't that interesting? So the very nature of the Christian is to be called out of the boat onto the shore to follow and serve Jesus, to walk alongside Jesus and to become a disciple and to give one's life to Christ and to serve him for the rest of your life. And in so doing, guess what you're doing? You're serving others in your generation. 
as Elijah was called to serve God, he went to the king. As you are called to serve God, you are called to serve other people in unique and profound ways. To turn their hearts back to wholehearted devotion to God. And that's what Elijah did with his life. Um, Finding your long game purpose, you serve God by serving others. Now, I just want to spend a few moments with you talking about the how, the why, and the what of Elijah's life, okay? And how, it, how this all came together. So let's look at that just briefly. The how is how did Elijah get to the point where he understood that his role was to serve God by serving whomever God puts in his play, in his, his, his world. So Elijah is now serving the king at his pleasure. He runs into Ahab, he runs into Obadiah, and then in 18, which chapter uh, 18, verse 21, we're going to look at in a few weeks, he's going to call all the people of Israel together, and he's going to challenge them to decide whom they will serve. So he turns Ahab's rebellion into repentance. He turns Obadiah's fear into faith, and he takes the nation of Israel, and he brings them into a devotion to the Lord. All Ahab is doing is encouraging people to take the next step in their full devotion to the Lord. And that's what God calls us to do every day. Every single one of us can be an encouragement, can be a person that might bring encouragement, that may, when needed, bring about correction, confrontation, in order to promote the greatest amount of devotion to the Lord. That's every single one of us, and that's the life of Elijah. Well, how did he get there? How did he do that? Well, first of all, he stepped out of his comfort zone, right? I mean, if he had stayed in Gilead, nothing would have happened. This section of scripture wouldn't even exist, right? We wouldn't have the next three or four chapters, if not all the way to the end of Kings, the rest of his life, where he, at the end of his life, you know the story, he goes from being a farmer and a sheep herder to getting into a chariot of fire and being ascended into the heavens. How about that? He gets to be ascended into the heavens in a chariot. I mean, God sends a chariot, Elijah, it's time, come on up. We're going to skip the whole death thing, and we're just going all, we're going straight up. How in the world did he get to that point? Well, he got to that point because, number one, he stepped out of his comfort zone, and he said, okay, Lord, if that's what you call me to do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to overcome my fears. Just a couple other thoughts. I think he also had an insane devotion to the Lord that was developing for a long time. It says in James chapter 5 that in this one section of scripture, it says confess your sins one to another, and we kind of go, okay, let's move on. What's verse 17 say? Well, verse 17 says, Elijah was a man of prayer, and he prayed, and it didn't rain for three years, and then he prayed again, and it rained, and then it rained. And so on the basis of his, the power of his prayer life, he was able to call rain out of heaven and stop the rain. I mean, he and God were on some level of playing field that, that was like beyond ours. I think Elijah was a man of prayer. It was a secret weapon. I think because he was so devoted to the Lord, he was, he was being prepared to be the greatest servant of all. 
Um, I was reading, um, I was curious to see how Tim Keller was doing in his cancer. Tim Keller is one of my favorite writers and teachers, and I just, I, I've never had a chance to meet him, but I've been to his church, and, and um, uh, Tim Keller is just, he's just an all-time all phenomenal pastor and, and teacher, and, and for, for his writings are just incredible. So I've, every once in a while, I just pray for him, and he's, he was uh, diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And the amazing thing is, is he's doing great. And the Lord is just giving him more years in this earth, this earth. And at first it was shocking. And then later he said in an article, I said, how, you know, I, I typed in, how's Tim Keller doing? And, and up came this article that he and his wife were sharing that said, I would never trade this experience for anything in my life. It has taken me to a whole other level of prayer. I feel like I was a good man of prayer. And he's wrote a book on prayer. I mean, you know, but he said, I have been literally lifted into the heavens and something has happened where I am at a totally different place in terms of my understanding of God, his experience. I mean, it's, it's like we, our feet are so firmly on this earth that it's sometimes hard for us to realize and imagine that there is an eternal realm with eternal power and things happening all around us that we have no idea sometimes because we're so firmly in this world. And what Tim Keller has realized is that he's facing death like every single one of us. And he has no idea of the time frame. But because of this... He has been elevated into a supernatural realm through prayer. And I could not, I, I was intrigued as I read that. Like, I hope he writes more about that because we need to be there. Because I think in that, what happens is we begin to be prepared to be a servant of all. And I think that was the key to Elijah's life in terms of preparing him and then enabling him to get to a place where he is able to truly live like Jamie Winship. Denise um, turned me on to a great book and podcast by this, this um, guy that was offered a job by the CIA. And they asked him what his um, success was in terms of being able to solve. He was a police officer, and the CIA saw that he could solve cases that no one else could solve. He said, what's your secret? He says, I pray. And they're like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, he's talking to the CIA about a job, and his answer is, I pray, and God solves the mystery, solves the problem. Could you imagine that? You're still hired. We still want you. You just keep praying to that God, because for some reason, your success is beyond anything we've ever seen in this world. He says, no, I'm not going to work for the CIA. I'm actually going to start my own consulting company, and I'll consult you. And so he writes this book called Living Fearless. We are so overcome by fear, and our feet are so firmly on this ground that we don't understand really what God is up to and what he wants us to do because we're not willing to go to that level. And in this book, he describes how we overcome our fear and begin to ask God the harder questions. Lord, what are you teaching me and what do you want me to do? And it always comes down to an identity, by the way, which is so interesting. He, he frames it in this way, that God has an identity that's unique to you, 
You just don't know it yet. You just need to ask the Lord, what's the identity you've given me? And I, I find that intriguing, at least in terms of a conversation with God about what possibly could be that identity that is so unique to me that only I have that identity. And I would ask the question, what is yours? Do you know it? But within it, I guarantee you, no matter what your identity is, and I came up with this, by the way, as I'm reading through this book, I wrote in the margin, purveyor of truth. And, and he says, he prays and then says, what's the first thing you hear from the Lord? And I said, the first thing I heard from the Lord is purveyor of truth. And I think purveyor of truth, just the idea that I, I accumulate knowledge in order to digest it, understand it, and give it to others to bring about activation. That's, that's what I love to do. It's so funny. I was at my brother's house a couple nights ago, and uh, we were sitting on the couch, and, and uh, uh, he goes, have you ever thought about getting your PhD? I'm like, yeah, Dave, I've thought about it for 20 years. I've been still thinking about it. It's so funny, you know, back when I was finishing my master's degree in, in theology, and then this came up, and church, and writing, and and then I was in Oxford seven years ago, and it came back up, and I found a program for missionaries and pastors to do a PhD in Oxford. And, and it's not associated with the college, but it's there in Oxford, so it sounds really impressive. And, um, <laughs> but it's not really that impressive, probably. It's kind of like low-level uh, pastoral PhD program, but it's not. I mean, you still have to get a PhD, so somebody's got to prove it, right? So it's, it's still probably a very long process. And he goes, yeah, and, I, and I said, yeah, I think I gave that up. And then I got into the writing of this Elijah book. And then it's like, but you know what? That's what I really love to do. I love learning so that I can bring about a greater understanding of truth to bring about activation in the lives of other people. But no matter what you do, whether you're a servant as a, as a parent or whether you're, you have a company that you have tons of people working for you, guess what you do? You serve at the pleasure of the king. You serve God by serving others to bring about an activation of pure devotion to the Lord. And guess how you learn that? By stepping out and also trusting him and spending a lot of time in prayer preparing and becoming a wholly devoted follower of God. It actually says in chapter 19 that I'm the one, I alone am the prophet with great zeal for the Lord. Now, God has to remind him there were 7,000 others, but in that moment, Elijah thinks he's the only one, and he says, I have great zeal. Zeal is, is passion, driven, incredible passion for one thing and one thing only. What drives you? And in a nation filled with idolatry, this is perfect. God chose the right person to bring about revival. That's my how. My why? Because the world was stuck in idolatry. That's my why. It's, they were stuck in idolatry. Idolatry is taking anything in your life that's good and making it supreme. It's making anything whether it's a relationship, a job, your money, whatever it is, your own strength, your stubbornness, whatever, the, your pride, whatever has made you successful or what you love or what you desire and making it an ultimate thing where it becomes so ultimate that if it gets torn from you, you experience a level of anger and frustration and uh, you go through a process of 
wanting it back. Just don't, I'm not going to lose it. I'm, I'm going to hold on to this. It's the ring. And this country was now involved in this commingling of religions that brought about a, delu a, a diluted perspective of God. And the only way to bring them back was through a process of releasing idolatry. And we live in a nation of idols, and it's been going on a long time. I did this two-hour study that I will not share with you this morning um, about the history. Like, I, I asked the question, what in the world has happened today? I'm reading Malcolm Muggeridge and his, um, his review of Blaise Pascal's Last Thoughts in Pensee. And, um, and Malcolm writes this book, Malcolm Rudd, The End of Civilization. And I'm thinking to myself, I've read a lot of books like that. What in the world has happened? Why do we feel like we're in a totally different place in the United States than we were 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, 100 years ago? And, and then I decided to think, well, let me, let's go all the way back to the beginning when Christ came and the development of the church and moving into organized religion to moving through the Middle Ages to the Renaissance to the Enlightenment into postmodernism, the Reformation, and into modernity. And I did this whole study tracking kind of what happened, and what happened is the dilution of wholehearted devotion to God. That's what happened. I, I in fact, found this in um, Blaise Pascal's, if you've ever read Pensee, is his thoughts later in his life. Blaise Pascal was a math mathematician. He was a uh, physicist, but he became a believer. And it's a fascinating story how he became a believer, but I won't go into there. Um, but here's the quote. The Christian God doesn't stand at the end of an argument, ready to be proved and ticked off as something known and then ignored. He's an intensely passionate God who, when he comes into relationship with people, unites himself with them in the depths of their soul and makes them incapable of having any other end but him. Think of that. God has so wired you that when you come in contact with him in an authentic, deep, powerful experience, guess what he does? He dismantles idolatry in your life. That's what God does. He does that work. You are incapable of loving anything as much as you love God. That's what Blaise Pascal said. You either have this kind of intimate personal encounter or you don't. And I think the why is that Elijah recognized he needed to turn people back into passionate followers of God. Two Jewish philosophers said this about the Old Testament. The central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. The central principle of the entire Bible is to rid God's people from idolatry. That's worth thinking about. And asking the question, what are the idols in my life? What is, what am I holding on to? It's a challenge. It's why Elijah served at the pleasure of the king. And the final thing, what does he do? Well, he confronts, he shows compassion, and he brings about correction. He confronts the king. He cares enough to confront. He cares enough because of his devotion to the Lord to go to the king, risk his life, 
and speak to the king about this terrible thing that's going on and pointing out the fact that, king, I'm going to say it like it is. Truth hurts, but here it is. Because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the veils. And sometimes we just need to be confronted. Sometimes we need a firm kick in the pants. Other times we need a pat on the back. We need both. Sometimes you just need encourage. Sometimes you just need to just kind of... And so he confronts. And then he says, by the way, God says it's going to rain again. God is always compassionate after a drought. After a drought comes rain. God always wants to pour rain, spiritual health back into people. Well, that is interesting, isn't it? Therein alone is, I think, a major theme in the New Testament, which says that we're to go after other people and care for them and serve them and be like Jesus in Philippians 2 or in Hebrews 10.24 to stimulate one another to love and good deeds or all these other great passages where we're called to serve and love other people. Why? We don't serve them to condemn them. We serve them to love them, to bring them back to the rain, bring, always to bring them back to the rain. So it's never condemnation. It's always to bring them back to the place where God can spiritually nourish them again. And so compassion is shown and then correction. And the correction is we've got to eliminate the idols. And in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about that. It happens on Mount Carmel. Let me end with two stories. Here's how it all gets boiled down. Here's the whole message in two stories. Denise and I got married two perfectly adjusted human beings, now living in the same roof, stubborn as all get out. I thought marriage was going to be easy. Well, I learned differently. It was hard, and we had some marriage problems. We were stubborn. I thought it was going to work itself out. It wasn't working itself out, and we had a lot of marriage, marriage difficulties. So this went on for several years, and we had a very, very dear friend who was the director of, of crew down in San Diego State, Matt Booker, who actually Denise worked for when she was on staff with crew before we got married. And Matt and his wife stayed in great friendship with us, and he saw it from the inside. He could see our, our marriage uh, deteriorating. He could see some major issues that needed to be addressed. And so he came to me, like a good brother should. And he said... I see some problems. I think you should go get some counseling. I thought, well, that's nice. That's appreciate that. It's, thanks for the advice. Thank you. I'll take that into consideration. And then he said, I wasn't done yet. He said, and if you don't, I'm going to go to your church and tell your elders. <laughs> well, I don't know anything that I would have been more fearful of as a young seminarian heading into the ministry than my elders finding out I've got a really bad marriage and I'm not going to do anything about it or we had a struggling marriage. Well, Matt really ticked me off. Like, how dare he get into my life and tell me that he's going to go tell someone else that you've just stepped over the line? We just don't do that, do we? I mean, there's no way I, I, I could... I, I, it's just hard for me to imagine even in the 21st century. This was like 30-plus years ago that we would get into someone's face and say, look, I, you need to do this, and I love you that much, and there's a consequence. And he did it in the most loving way. We always approach people with gentleness and humility. It's, it's, it's the only way to go. I mean, read Matthew 7, 
the idea of the, the speck and the, the plank. We are to do it with so much humility, we actually recognize the fact, and I'm probably worse offender than you are, but with all humility, this is an area of your life maybe you really need to focus on. And so Matt, um, encouraged me, <laughs> more than encouraged me, and we did it. And looking back on my life now, I can honestly say that I really appreciate there was a man in my life that stood up to me. And we went through counseling, and then we went through another set of counseling, and we, we did it periodically for over 20-plus years, most of our marriage. And I have to honestly say to you, we've reached a point where um, we have reached new understanding, new acceptance, forgiveness, um, progress is always good. And more devoted to the Lord, working together in ministry, I just thank the Lord for someone like that in my life. Serving people by serving God. I'll give you one other example. I was in the worst, worst, worst place in ministry ever. It's in Chicago. I, had a, I was at a crossroads. It's either give up and go back into commercial real estate or some other work or be humbled and stay in ministry and go through a process. And I was in a church, and they had given me, given me some time to work things out, and I was in a tough place. And um, some things didn't go well in a ministry situation, so that's what it was. And, and so they wanted me to kind of cool down, and, and I got pretty upset and, and all of that. And um, so they assigned me this total stranger. I want you to meet with this total stranger every week. He was a dentist from Chicago. All I know about him was that he loved to take trips to Africa with other groups, to missionary trips, and he was a dentist, and he loved the Lord. So we started meeting. He gave me a book. Let's read this together. I, to this day, I forgot his name. I was in such a bad place, it didn't even register, and I wasn't really even wanting to meet with him, but I continued to meet with him. And week after week after week, he just kept pouring back into my life as a humble man, knowing I wasn't ready, and said, Todd, you can do this. God wants to restore you. He wants to bring you back. Don't give up. I did get restored. I went back in the ministry. Many years later, I heard that this dentist was in Africa and on a windy road in a car accident and died and left this earth before I was able to call him and tell him that he had a major influence in my life through encouragement. And here I am, restored, thankful, because a man took time out of his day to bring encouragement into my life. That's what serving the Lord's all about. So, Father, as we go to worship, we are, um, we are humbled by the fact that you use us even when we feel so useless. What in the world do we have to offer someone else? And yet, the, the very material that you use is our lives. May we be more devoted to you and aware of the people around us that you have called us to serve. And we may we find great happiness and success and purpose in the life of following Jesus. Amen.
we uh, go into worship, and as Amanda said, we're going to change up our rhythms here a little bit. We're going to have two songs just to create some space for response, to really engage with the Lord with what we've just heard and seen in God's word. And as we do that, we're going to take some time to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, this place where we see God serving us in the most profound way, where he pours out his grace on us through the death and resurrection of his son. So right now I'm going to um, invite us just to stand kind of in this uh, posture of receiving from God and uh, collect the elements at the table in the back. We'll come back here in a moment. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together and then we'll have some time to worship together. So right now just uh, go ahead and uh, grab the, the elements here at the table in the back. Find your way back to your seat. We'll celebrate communion and then we'll, we'll worship. Scripture shows us that the great power for us to serve the way that we see modeled in the life of Elijah, the way that we're invited to serve God by serving people is that we receive from God, that we've been served in the most profound way first, that he is initiated with us in grace. And so we remember that as we celebrate the Lord's the Supper, where we declare over ourselves the finished work of Jesus, God's grace poured out onto us. So right now, um, we're going to do so together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took the bread and uh, he said, this is my body broken for you. And so as we, we take, we do so in remembrance of Jesus's life given for us, his sinless life in our place. Let's take and remember and declare that life over us right now. Then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. So as we take, we do so proclaiming the full forgiveness of God over our lives, that every sin, past, present, and future is paid for in full on the cross of Jesus. Let's that, declare that over ourselves right now as we take in remembrance of him. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for your grace. We're grateful that we come before you with confidence, knowing that every sin, past, present, and future is paid for in full on Jesus' cross. We pray that we would serve. We'd be those that serve you by serving others, that we would bring truth when needed, we'd bring encouragement when needed, and always in love, because we would know that we've been served by a holy God, a holy God who loves us, loves us more than we could possibly imagine or fathom, and invites us to life with him and gives us grace upon grace upon grace. Would that be real to us this morning? Would the grace and love of God be real, not just theory, not just something we learn about or read about, but something we experience and know in our gut. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for what we see on your cross. Would you help us to say yes to the life that you invite us to live? We ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing. 
that you paid love compelled you to the cross so may love compel us to you this morning sing this together your love has ravished my heart your love has ravished my heart and taking me over, taking me over, and all I want is to be with you forever, with you forever. Let's sing that again, your love. Your love has ravished my heart. And taking me over, taking me over, and all I want, and all I want is to be with you forever, with you forever. So pull me a little closer. So pull me a little closer. Take me. Your love is so much sweeter than anything I've tasted. Want to know your Want to know your heart. We want to know you more, Jesus. 
said before we don't want this just to be lip service but truth in our hearts this morning thank you for your love thank you for how present you are in every morning every afternoon every evening God when we rise may we rise to you Jesus when we lay our heads at night God may we go to sleep with your love surrounding us even those of us that have trouble falling asleep or just night terrors or anything like that, God, I just pray that your love would come in every night, that we would know that perfect love casts out fear and that you would be all around us and that you are all around us. And above all, God, our identity as sons and daughters of God, that we are loved and seen and known by you. So may we go out knowing that, that base and core identity of who you've called us to be you take us on a journey even this week of of learning more of that so we love you jesus we thank you for this time i pray you'd bless each and every one of us as we go in your name we pray amen amen thanks for worshiping with us we'll uh we'll see you next week bless you guys